everyone, and welcome to a special subscriber-only snippet from We Aren't Dead Yet. I'm Emily Armstrong, creator of the TTRPG system Quests and Quarrels, as well as the settings Beckettville, Culinary Punk, and Elder Space. I'm here with Dazzle Cat. Hello, I am Dazzle Cat. I am the creator of the TTRPG Meaty Bones, as well as the worlds of Pangorio and Hypnosium. I am here with Sapa. Hi there, my name is Safa Burnell. I'm a best-selling cyberpunk and mythpunk author and an editor for a small press. I've been in the fiction sphere for more than 15 years. And I'm going to remind everybody today, don't worry, there's always something we can do. Because we, we aren't, aren't dead, dead yet. yet. Disney just released its earnings report yesterday. All the report, the way they, they worded it, the spin they tried to put on that. Oh, man, the spin. Yeah, no, we are going to be profitable because we fired 7,000 people. It's great. Things are going awesome. And people are like, what? You? But they bought a 5% stake in Epic Games. I think they were trying to connect the Disney IPs to Fortnite. Because Fortnite is popular. And they're like, we need the youths. So I was trying to look into Fortnite because I really thought I hadn't really heard of like Fortnite just hasn't been as in the news lately. So I was like, are they really still growing? Like I thought Fortnite was kind of on the decline and it was in like 2022, which is like when I stopped kind of paying attention to it. And I guess it had a resurgence in like late 2023. So it is trying to come back up again. So that makes sense. I was like, why would they buy a dying game? That's so weird. But I was just reminded that they own Unreal Engine. Oh, Fortnite is great. It's making a lot of money. But now they own one of the biggest game engines that is used by everybody from big game developers to indie developers. Did you see Disney sent a video to its stockholders about how to vote? in the upcoming board election. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which included, um, oh, man, what is that character's name? Hold on. Ludwig von uh, Drake? Von Drake, yes. The, From all of those, like, entertainment movies. Yeah. Like the, yeah. The duck. So Disney, okay, so Disney's going through its Q1 earnings. It's going through some stuff going towards a board election. And in an attempt to get the current board reelected, Disney created a film for its stockholders featuring Ludwig von Drake, the duck that they used in a lot of their edutainment videos back in the day, using a ton of stock footage um, to teach the stockholders how to vote for the white card. Not the Tryon or the Blackwell cards, but the white card. You must vote white with the white card. And like they went through the entire thing of how you vote only for the people that Disney tells you to vote for. And don't even think, just throw away those other cards. They don't matter. Those other cards, the one from Trion with Nelson Peltz and all that and the Blackwell card, they don't matter. Just vote white. I know we don't have a video podcast, but my jaw is on the floor the entire time I've been talking. It was like mind blow. Who checked this? Was it the board? Did the board look at that video and say, yeah, nope, that's great work. You know, th- let's do this. Let's, let's just send it. The idea that Disney felt they needed to put a very, in my opinion, patronizing video with Ludwig van Drake for the, you know, nostalgia of Ludwig van Drake. Um, 
and then put it forth to all the stockholders to teach them how to vote? You think they've never seen a proxy card before? They are smart enough to go on the stock market and purchase stock. And you're telling me you have to hold their hand and tell them now, don't vote for any of those nasty other people. Only vote for the people Disney tells you to, even though we've lost billion dollars, even though we've had to cut 7,000 jobs. Make sure you use your white card and you throw away those other ones. Okay, kiddo? Pat, pat, pat. Disney. Yay. And wasn't, wasn't there a thing? Oh, yeah. We're doing much. Better than this year, we only lost this much instead of this big monstrous number. It's still a horrible number. They lost billions this last year. So you look at it and you're like, what board stays in power after this many consecutive decisions and losses? In what industry does a board stay in power when they've lost this much? And when they continue not to try and modify and adjust, but they continue to stay the course because trust us, it'll get better eventually. Like where? How do you how do you gain that faith back? I would love to know. Over the last few weeks, we've been discussing different types of characters and tropes across media. And during those chats, we find too many side topics to fit in a single episode. Now we finally have a chance to sit down and talk about a few aspects of media we didn't get to blab about yet. While talking about the Tencent and Hasbro rumors, we brought up opinions that if this was true, it was likely about IP use in the future because of Tencent's involvement in the Baldur's Gate 3 video game, which led us on a wild trail of nerdy media from aiming in Star Wars video games to our favorite Jokers, Starfield, and more. Enjoy this episode of We Aren't Dead Yet. And the way these IP, these things work is they get a license to use a certain part of the their IP product within that sphere. And they have a time limit in which they have to come up with a product. And then if it falls through, then it's dead in the water. Yeah, it's exactly the same as optioning. Yeah, it's an option. And so you option something for two reasons. One, because you want to make it. Two, because you have a competing story that's similar enough. And then you want to hold on, hold that one back for, you know, five to 10 years of the option, usually closer to five in my experience, uh, just so you can get your other thing out, which I mean, hey, the, the creator gets paid. You option a film, the creator gets paid. So, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that, you know, your movie, your book, your series that you wanted to make might be in limbo for five years, and then you can go somewhere else and get it optioned somewhere else. But not that it's very easy to do. Yeah, well, look at what was happening with, or what continues to happen with Star Wars games. They're constantly trying to find a game studio that can pump out Star Wars games that people enjoy, and they continuously struggle to find one. It is always being bounced around between studios. Oh my gosh, Star Wars Battlefront. It was almost, I'm like, am I legitimately being a stormtrooper here? Like, can't hit the side of a barn? I was terrible at that game, but I loved it. Yeah, right? And then the actual sights that you get are this kind of really dark color that's similar to every single other color in the palettes. So how are you supposed to see where you're aiming and things like that when you've got black on dark browns and blacks and tans? Like, have you ever heard of this amazing invention called color? <laughs> Make it a blood red scope thing. I mean, come on. Yeah. 
if we're talking specifically about like Star Wars, which that's where I'm like knowledgeable on is Star Wars games. So <laughs> with Star Wars, I was a huge fan of like Battlefront and Battlefront 2 when I was younger. Battlefront was like my big thing. I wasn't good at it, but I just loved that game so much. But in recent years, the IP for Star Wars games has kind of come into question a little bit. It was with EA for a very, very long time. Like, I think almost a decade, EA had the IP rights for video games. But then I think things really started to uh, drift downhill for EA. I play a lot of EA games. This is just a personal opinion of the games that I have played, but I've noticed a downward slant in my enjoyment of them. But you're so right, because I would play a lot of EA games too, because EA is a local company to where I am. And you're always supporting them, you know, playing the sports games, playing the games that EA put out. And then when they started doing this push to microtransaction, it really severely affected the ability to kind of play them. Like I remember... This is not an EA game. This is Square. But I remember playing Final Fantasy 15. I was super excited. And I was like, oh, man, yeah, you know, always you always get these epic storylines in Final Fantasy games. You get a game that you can play this thing for months like, and still not finish the entirety of the story. There's still more stuff to do in it, that kind of thing. Like, there's these huge expensive stories. And I got into it. And I was like, oh, yeah, and I got, you know, the, the right edition and all this stuff. And then three quarters of the way through the game, I was like, wait a minute, I'm already basically done? Oh, no, what you really need to do is go back and spend another $40 on each one of the chapters of the other episodes that belong in the story. And, like, I did not spend $120 fucking dollars on a video game to then have to spend another 80 to finish the storyline. I know, that sucks. Or, you know, buy a season pass to this game so for a brief amount of time you can play you know, this one game and get through a whole bunch of story. <laughs> there's this thing called nostalgia and there's this thing called replaying a game later on. Like I'm still playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey over again and again. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's so good. I am a huge Fallout fan. I'm a huge Bethesda fan in general. I love the Elder Scrolls series. I love Fallout. I'm very excited for the new Fallout Amazon show. I understand not everybody is excited for it, but I also understand that when a show comes to a network like that, it's no longer for the fans of the video game. It is for a broad public consumption and things have to change, things have to adapt. So yes, while I am frustrated with some of the things that I saw in the Fallout trailer, I'm still very, very excited for the Amazon series. With Fallout, they were doing these fantastic single-player games that were single-player RPGs, some of my favorite games. Fallout New Vegas, Fallout 3 are my top two. Mm, Bioshock might sneak into my number two slot there, but it would be a very tough fight with Fallout 3 and Bioshock. It would be rough. But then they released Fallout 76, and it was an online multiplayer, which they had not done yet, <laughs> And it had a microtransaction shop, and it had the Fallout first subscription plan. And it was something that they really hadn't done before. And it was, oh my god, I haven't, I played Fallout 76 for 
I think I have like 30 hours or something in that game, which is significant. That's not like a something to scoff at. But my other Fallout games have hundreds of hours on them. <laughs> I could keep playing those forever. But Fallout 76, not only is it multiplayer, which just is not my thing in general, so of course it has that going against it for me, but a lot of the events are not ongoing events and I missed out on a lot of them and you can't always go back to all of them and you need other people to be playing with you. And if the servers aren't, if there aren't people in the servers, you can't do certain things. So I prefer single player games that don't require multiplayer or online because those just tend to have more microtransactions and they really drag down the entire experience. I can't stand it. Well, I think this is just part of me being a punk. You know, this is part of me being contrary in all things. You know, my spouse calls me uh, their contrarian just because I'm constantly contrary. But don't tell me when I can engage with the story and when I can't. Like, if I want to play some side quest story, I want to be do it on my own terms on my own time. I don't want to know, oh, no, I've only got two weeks to do this special event and then it's gone forever. Well, F you. I'm just going to walk away and play something that I know I can play at my own leisure, because I'm not pressuring myself to do something that's supposed to relax me. Who are you to say that I need to carve out hours of my schedule every week to make sure I can get consistent play in order so that I can do this one thing, get a special MacGuffin, and then actually be able to defeat the dragon at the end? I want to be able to play a game. I usually binge them for, you know, a few days. I'll play video games for an insane amount of time. And then I might put video games down altogether for weeks just because of life and, you know, work and everything like that. I don't really like it when it's like, oh, got to do my dailies, you know, got to, oh, got to do the dailies, you know, oh my goodness, got to get oh, my I dailies know. in, because if you don't get your dailies in, you're going to miss out on, you know, the special MacGuffin that's going to come later. Like, that's now no longer a form of entertainment, in my opinion. That's, that's a work. That's a job. It's obligation. Yeah, it's an obligation in order to fulfill something that's supposed to be just pure entertainment and fun. Yep, my husband plays Destiny 2, and there's that you have to sign in to get your little stuff every day during events, and he will log in remotely to get his, his stuff for events because he doesn't want to sign in and do the whole thing, and he has work and doesn't have time, and it's really an obligation at that point. I can't stand games like that. They're just not for me. Some people really love that kind of stuff. Which all goes back why companies are interested in getting these IPs in, to begin with. Well, yeah. When talking about like IP, actually, I could talk about Fallout all day. I'll, I might even do a, uh, a, a little blog post about Fallout world building because there's some really interesting stuff in Fallout. But Bethesda hired out Obsidian to create Fallout New Vegas, which is pretty much considered by the Fallout community as the best Fallout game. And it's not technically a Bethesda game. Yeah, it's a Bethesda game because Bethesda hired out to Obsidian, blah, blah, blah. But Obsidian created the game. And then they decided not to work with Obsidian again after that. Which, in my mind, is like, what? Why? Why would you do that? Anyway, I could get to a whole rant about them. But then, years later, Obsidian came out with Outer Worlds. And in their trailer, they put from the makers of Fallout New Vegas. Like, <laughs> it was this whole thing. It was really petty. And then they had to come out with Starfield years after that. And Starfield sucks. 
I mean, it reminds me of No Man's Sky. <laughs> you yes. Know, like, yeah. Well, actually, a lot of people are hoping that Starfield will end up because No Man's Sky, when it first came out, was a disaster. Yeah. It was really, really rough. Oh, so bad. But they listened to their audience and their players and they made changes years and years and years. And now it's a great game. People are praying that Starfield would go that way. But Starfield's HR people, like public, public relations PR people, are responding to negative reviews telling people how to properly play Starfield. Oh my God. Just take it. Take the ne- negativity. Like, oh my God. Can you imagine telling gamers, did you know that there are side quests? Oh my gosh, dude. <laughs> Read the room, dude. No, I, I remember really liking uh, No Man's Sky. I played it, you know, a couple of years ago. I bought it. I don't have a VR for my PlayStation, so I think that kind of made the experience a little bit trickier. Uh, but with me, certain video games, like the studio that makes the Witcher video games, and they also uh, made Cyberpunk 2077, for some reason, no matter how I change the camera settings, I am nauseous in like 30 minutes. It's that feeling of being carsick when you're, you know, going down a ladder with Geralt and you're like, oh man, I'm like, I really want to play this game. This is one of the best games ever. Witcher 3, I really want to play this story. And I'm like, you're not alone. This is a complaint that people have been having with uh, CD Projekt Red games is that they get motion sickness from stuff like Witcher 3 and Cyberpunk 2077, that they're actually getting like headaches and they came out with some kind of accessibility patch at some point, but I don't think it worked properly. And oh, there was a whole thing about it. And it sucks because yeah. it's me, right? What are my two favorite things in the universe? Number one, cyberpunk. And I can't even play the cyberpunk 2077 game. And then two, it's world mythology and like Slavic mythology, which is exactly what The Witcher is. I'm like, are you kidding me? The two games I was narratively the most excited about in years. And I tried to play them at my sister's place in Manchester. And I had to stop a few minutes in because I'm like, I'm sorry. I just, I'm like, this is really good. She's like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm like, no, it's my head. Like every single time anybody moves, the camera is just like choppy clover fields level of it's like they're oh let's make it more real by pretending that the camera is a steady cam dude there's a reason why those shots are fewer and farther between and for the most part in film you have stable camera mounts it's because people are gonna get sick and now you're having somebody move all around the way around and it's just mm, oh i just think about it and i'm like oh Oh no. This is just speculation, but I always wonder if things like that are to cover up stuff in the production. Because in film, that's exactly what that's used for. Like 90% of the time, shaky cam is to cover up some bad CGI or some weird setting that they're in that like maybe the set is not exactly up to their standards, so they'll use shaky cam to kind of cover up. Or they're trying to cover a budget constraint, so they just slap a steady cam onto a guy, and they're like, okay, just run. Just run through it. Like, there's been a few steady cam shots that I've really enjoyed in cinema in the last 15 years. I can think of Children of Men. That one was fucking amazing. Going in and out of vehicles and keeping that shot. There's the first shot of the Serenity movie. That one was incredible, like going through the ship and meeting all the characters, and Mal is, is going through, and it's just a steady cam shot. That one was really good. And then you have, I don't know if it was Steadicam or a small crane, 
but the shot in the first Daredevil episode when it was aired on Netflix, there's that hallway fight and Daredevil just goes through it and, you know, there's a bunch of side rooms and everything like that. I'm not sure if that was a study camera or if it was a boom. Yeah, when I, I think of the really ridiculously long scene in Birdman. Yeah. Oh, so good. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really long, like, steady cam hold shots. Oh, yeah. I'm forgetting Garrett Brown. He was the inventor of the steady cam. And the first time it was used was in Bound for Glory, um, Hal Ashby's film. But then he used it to incredible effect on The Shining. <gasps> That's right. And it was one of the first movies to ever have that technology in it. That long tracking shot in the hallway. Kubrick. Kubrick used the Steadicam a lot. Like, but it goes with his sort of philosophy of, of narration and philosophy of filmmaking that Kubrick would want to bring people off kilter momentarily and then extend those moments for a longer period of time because he, in my opinion, realized very quickly that putting somebody off killer and then ramping the tension slowly as you keep them off kilter is the number one way to keep people invested before everything kind of bam goes down the ax strikes and everything else happens. And so when you look at the films of Kubrick, he plays with tension like a virtuoso, you know, it's just incredible. And he knew when to unsettle people, when to keep them off their footing, literally with a steady cam and when to let them stabilize. And then we see in a lot of these video games and a lot of these movies that came out much later, they're using the Steadicam in the majority of takes. And in video games, they're using that sort of Steadicam-like approach for the entirety, basically, of the person's gaming experience. Well, it's fine to have Steadicam scenes that take up 10 minutes of a film when the film is 90 minutes to two hours long. But... When you have something that you're going to be living inside for, you know, 40 hours, that is way too long. And you're going to end up just destabilizing and making people sick. I'm trying to Google uh, when the first use of this kind of technique was. I think we're getting into the history of video games here, which is a great topic we need to get into at some point in time. Let's put it on the list. Uh, But I think, too, we need to recognize that earlier video games would not necessarily have had the rendering technology to pull that kind of thing off. You know, I remember with uh, Final Fantasy VII when it first came out for the PlayStation 1, and you can kind of decide the way that the camera goes. The ability to smoothly move a camera in a video game took time to figure out. This is back in the era where we still had consoles that had games made of chips a la Nintendo, and then going on to like the CD and the DVD. So there is so only so much rendering speed you can get on that kind of thing. And only so many pixels and only so much detail you can have before the system just starts whirring and cannot handle it anymore. And so I think that, you know, by the almost 2010s, you know, by that period of time between uh, 2000 and 2010, that's when technology really started bumping up where they could do a lot more with different camera angles and things like that without everything looking choppy or without everything looking just like a flat background with some cardboard cutouts on it until you focus too much, too hard. And then all of a sudden they kind of render and pop. And because remember like when video games, like you 
turn a corner and then things would be really flat and then it would like yeah. uh, 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 and kind of form in the world. And so, you know, you're doing something. I mean, the worst game for that. I remember when I was a kid was Wolfenstein 3D. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. And that's the number one game. You don't want like Dr. Stabs. You don't want Dr. Stabs to like look like a cardboard cutout and then lunch for you. Because- I was Googling because I want, I always like to fact check myself with these kind of things. I was trying to find it beforehand, but I wasn't searching the right terms. And then I think you said over the shoulder and I was like, oh, that's literally what it's third person over the shoulder camp. And I Googled it and it is, people are saying they believe it was probably Resident Evil 4. But they don't think it was like the first game, just the most popularized one that used it early kind of thing. Because some people are also saying like Ghost Recon 2, they remember. So people remember earlier ones, but it seems like Resident Evil 4 in 2005. I was going to say, I also just really quick want to throw out with the Steadicams. I can't remember if it's a Steadicam or if it's just a long take. I can't believe we forgot the scene in Old Boy. Um, the hallway fight. If you haven't seen Old Boy, oh, have you guys seen Old Boy? Yeah, that was Old Boy. Well, that was the inspiration for the Daredevil scene. Yeah, it's yeah, 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 exactly. Where they're they're going down that the hallway. Old he's boy. Just, oh crap! Okay, hold on, Old Boy. It's it's like it's like a side scroller, but in a movie. It is so good. It's such an amazing scene. If you are listening, it took seventeen takes this. in three days to perfect, and was one continuous take. There was no editing of any sort except the knife that was stabbed in um, Old Desu's back. Was it a crane or was it a steady cam? No, that's a that's a crane. I, I in my mind I had that it was a continuous shot from before, like when he had the knife on the guy's throat, and so then the camera would have had to change angle. But no, I I was wrong. The continuous start shot starts after he drops the knife. Yep, it starts. It's from the side. That was the only thing I was like, oh man, no, but that starts off with him like slicing the yeah. guy's throat. Like, <laughs> wait a minute. Oh no, it doesn't. It starts with the knife falling down. Oh, just beautiful. I get really excited by this kind of thing, but science fiction and action movies are like, oh my God, give them to me all day long. Like, I'll, I'll watch that kind of action movie all day. We could get into like auteur filmmaking and things like that a lot though, you know, but uh, we should, we should definitely get into a little bit of multimedia and film and things like that at some point in the future. But for now, let's let Daz actually tell us. <laughs> I, I play game. I watch movies. Yeah. Why? <laughs> and meanwhile, Emily and I are like, oh, yeah, but no, was that the steady cam or was that the boom? I'm pretty, oh, hold on. Let me I'm take a look going, at this. Uh, <laughs> what the hell is steady cam? And- oh, okay. So, Daz, a steady cam is an, it's like a, um, a vest rig where the camera guy wears the camera. There is the secure like waistband vest rig that goes all the way up the shoulders. There is a plate on the chest that they mount the actual boom, like the rig to. And then, you know, uh, like, I mean, my mic stand has, you know, the different pulleys and things like that to make sure that something could be fairly steady. And so they've got all of those coming from the man's chat, like from the guy's chest. And then the camera, like the actual film camera is, is rigged on top of all of that. So the person has to use one hand on the camera to, you know, control the camera, one hand on a sidearm of the camera to control where that camera is going to go. It is attached to their body and they become the tripod and they have to be able to use that rig, which I've worn steady cams multiple times. I think the heaviest one I ever wore was 90 pounds. They're literally wearing this thing 
and making sure that they do shots exactly to the position that the camera needs to be while staring into the tiny little view screen of the camera to make sure that they've got the shot, make sure they've got the focus, make sure they've got everything else. Focus pullers can be used. Focus pullers are like a camera assistant that does certain things, but it's a little bit, you know, it gets more complicated the more people you have. And then if there's any wires involved, you need production assistants to make sure that they're constantly checking the, you know, like you grab the best boys, you grab the grips and you, you know, you have the grips kind of take care of the wires. Everything's up to the camera guy and very few camera guys can actually do steady cam work with any effectiveness whatsoever. And think about it for the most part, that camera guy is likely walking backwards. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah, I recently watched some of the bonus content from the early 2000s Batman movies, and I think it was in The Dark Knight, they were talking about some of the IMAX Steadicam shots, and I realized how much of a difference good Steadicam makes. Like, it should pull you into the action without you even realizing. It works great in action stuff like Batman. Oh, and also, uh, big, why didn't we talk about this news item? Uh, The leaks from the Suicide Squad game. The same guys that did Batman Arkham Asylum, uh, well, the same production studio, not the same people working on it because those people have left the company, but the same production team have created the Suicide Squad video game that is within the same Batman Arkham Asylum universe where Harley Quinn and the other members of the Suicide Squad kill every single Justice League member, piss on their corpses, then destroy Brainiac. And there is a leaked scene, so spoilers for the game, There is a leaked scene where Harley Quinn basically has this incredibly long monologue, which includes the words, it's our turn now. And then she shoots Batman point black range in the head and kills him. And there is this moment in the monologue where, you know, she goes, you never thought it was going to be me, did you, Bats? And, you know, how funny that it's me that ends up killing you. And I was like, okay, so the person who wrote that clearly did not watch Batman the Animated Series, which is the origin point of Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn was a character created specifically for Batman the Animated Series. She was created by Paul Dini in the 90s. And then she became this explosive character from the show because she used her psychology degree because she was a PhD psychologist. She was a psychiatrist who worked on aberrant personalities. And that's how she met the Joker and, you know, fell in love and released him and things like that. But she's still a psychologist at heart. You know, she's still this incredibly intelligent woman who pulled herself up by her own bootstraps and got a degree. And so she manipulated Batman into thinking that she needed to come in because she was a battered woman, which she was, you know, and they did a really good job of this um, back in the nineties, you know, talking about the relationship, the dysfunctional relationship between Joker and Harley And she takes off her makeup. She takes off her clothes and goes, it's not funny anymore. I need you to help me. And so Batman goes lunging in there to go try and save Harley. And she knocks him out, chains him up upside down. So the blood was rushing to his head. She did something nobody really had done. She took off his gloves and utility belts, left them on the side when she was chaining him up, left him hanging upside down above this vat of piranha that had been trained to eat human flesh. Because, you know, the Joker wanted to kill Batman that way, but he couldn't make the piranha smile. So he ditched that idea. And she was like, why don't you just turn Batman upside down? And then the little piranha are smiling. Batman ended up waking up completely groggy, you know, out of his mind. And the only thing he could do to stop her from killing him was telling her how proud the Joker would be if he could see this. 
And so she's like, yeah, I'm going to tell, you know, I'm going to tell my pudding. I'm going to tell him right now. He's going to be so proud of me. Like, oh my goodness, I got him. I got Batman. And so she calls the Joker and he proceeds to beat her within an inch of her life because she can't defeat Batman. The Joker has to defeat Batman. And the Joker saving Batman in that moment and Batman starts laughing. And it's this really creepy kind of like, oh my God, what's happening? And he tells the Joker, just as a way of getting back at him, that's the closest anybody's ever come to killing me. And if I hadn't have gotten her to call you, she would have done it. So there's never been a point where Harley Quinn was not considered dangerous and incredibly powerful. So I don't know why in this video game, they're like, oh yeah, finally, look, look, it's me. It gets to kill you. Yeah, we always knew that. Like, we've known that 91. <laughs> Such a good character. Such a good character. And then the Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn episode back in the 90s. Holy crap. I love, I love that character. I've loved her since the 90s. I, I think my favorite representations of Harley Quinn, though, are still the original Batman, the animated series. Heath Ledger is probably the best Joker, but my Joker is Cesar Romero. <laughs> I still remember that episode where Cesar Romero broke into Bruce Wayne's house and Alfred, <laughs> like, gets him on the bat pole and just keeps, yeah. like, bringing him up and down. And finally, the Joker's like, help! Help! <laughs> Get me out of here! Like that's I love the new Batmans and stuff. They're all great, but that's my Batman is that era of Batman. I just I know I love it. Like if, if anybody who knows me knows I love campiness and silly <laughs> and goofy, and that's just I love that Batman so much. Oh, <laughs> uh, you see, I was exactly at the perfect age range. My older brother and I were at the perfect age for Batman the animated series. So that was how I grew up. Kevin Conroy's Batman. Years ago for a newspaper, I wrote an article about the Joker and about the many faces of the Joker and Heath Ledger's Joker was just insanely powerful and such a good performance. And I'm so sorry that we lost Heath Ledger when we did. But for me, the Joker is Mark Hamill. I mean, just that laugh, you get the laugh, you get that trill down your spine. You know, and that, you're just like, Comparing Jokers and Batmans is literally like comparing apples to oranges. They're such different styles. There's not really like one that's better than the other. It's just what what flavor of Joker or Batman are you feeling today? Are you feeling moody and dark? Yeah, you know, and then you have Mark Hamill's Joker with Kevin Conroy's Batman. You have Christian Bale's Batman with Heath Ledger's Joker. You have Adam West's Batman with Cesar Romero's Joker. All of them were so perfectly paired. Yeah. I don't think you could have gotten better pairings. No. No, they did such a good job. The casting directors did such a good job with that. Oh, man. And then, of course, Harley Quinn. And the way that she's come into herself and the way they've made her more and more her own character instead of a side character is just epic. I know we're getting another joker movie with lady gaga as uh, harley quinn i'm very interested to see it i'm not like critical of it i actually don't really have too many thoughts one way or the other i'm just interested to see it i think it'll be um it'll probably be a good film i will admit that it is the one bat universe movie that i have not seen yeah no i didn't see the, i didn't see the first one i have to watch the first joker and then i'll watch the second one yeah, you know, and I, like I have every faith 
in Joachim Phoenix for creating a character like the Joker. For me, it was a situation where I was going to go see it with my spouse and my spouse just in their professional career was like, I know too many people who are as mentally ill as this character. I can't go see that. And it was definitely one of those situations where it was just a little too close to home with what he deals with on an everyday basis. And uh, so we declined seeing that movie, not because we didn't believe it was good, but just because it would have been harder for my spouse to sit there and enjoy themselves instead of, you know, it would not have been enjoyable. It would have been something where they were reminded by their everyday situation when they go to work. I remember just being like, knowing that it was going to be a little, little too much mentally for me. So I ended up not going to see it, but now I'm in a much better place. And I'm like, I think I can handle that movie now. I should watch that. And now that I've seen some of the Lady Gaga leaks and stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'll like the second one. I I love Joaquin Phoenix. I was never the kind of girl that had crushes on like boy bands and stuff. I loved Joaquin Phoenix. Like, <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I can't even imagine where I would have seen him that that started, but he was like, the and when he did Walk the Line. <laughs> oh, I saw Walk the Line. Yeah. Oh. Like that was peak my like loving Joaquin Phoenix. And when that came out, I was like, yes. So I'm really surprised that I never went back to watch Joker in the last couple of years, but I definitely have to. And I recently saw him in Bo is Afraid and he was fantastic. So I remember seeing him in She. I remember seeing him in, uh, well, my first Joaquin Phoenix movie was Gladiator. Mm-hmm. Or he was just chilling, you know? So I always knew him as this really chilling and enigmatic figure. That might have been my, my first, that might have been where I saw him. It was definitely The Village, oh, yeah. but I had seen him before that. I mean, the Joker, the way that they did it in 2019 when they released this film, you very much got that idea that he was very messed up by his mother. And so I think for me, I'm like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> I, I know it's an incredibly well done film. I know that everyone did such a good job and I'm very proud of what they did in that film. And I believe that it deserved all of the accolades that it got. Sometimes you look at something, you're like, yeah, that narrative's not for me. And you walk away before you get into it because you're like, yeah, I just don't, nope. Now I want to watch like Marvel's Daredevil and The Punisher. Oh, I I know. Oh man, the, the what they did to him in the comics was ridiculous. I'm sorry, bringing his wife back from the dead and telling him to give up all gun violence because it makes her sad. Sometimes you need a, a character like the Punisher who is a vigilante that knows what the stakes are of real life. Like sometimes you need that gritty character who's willing to kill for what needs to be done to, you know, destroy murderers and people who conduct awful, awful acts. That's not the Punisher anymore. Just don't use him. Keep him where he was. Keep him in the 80s. Keep him in the 90s. Keep him gritty. When you try and just consistently retcon something into its time, you inevitably pigeonhole and remove a lot of the stuff that made it valuable to that place in contextual history. I just, uh, what's he now? The, the wrist slapper? I'll stick to the old movies, the old two movies, and the, the uh, short TV series, limited series they had of it. The Punisher series that they did along with the Daredevil series within the same kind of cinematic sort of TV universe as Luke Cage. That was good. Oh my gosh. And by the time he gets to that 
end of season one of that Punisher show. And he's finally sitting there in a kind of like communal soldiers therapy circle. And he leans down and goes, I guess I'm just afraid. Cut. Bam. Woof. Oh my gosh. Cry like a baby. Best, like some of the best film that like some of the best narration and narrative that we have gotten in TV history right there. Like, holy crap. We get through this entire thing. And in the end, he finally reveals his inner vulnerable self. And you're like, (gasps) and all you want to do is just, just hug this man and cry because he's been through literal hell and he did it for every single person that doesn't know how to put, pull up their fists. But I mean, Luke Cage, oh, cinematic beauty, just cinematic gold. Luke Cage was phenomenal. That show just gave me chills. And you got to see a quite beloved character of mine from Sons of Anarchy. So that show was just amazingly well done. So did you watch Iron Fist? My spouse is a big Kung Fu person. So I absolutely watched Iron Fist. And I just find the trope of, oh, I'm wealthy, but I despise my wealth. So I shall live like a peasant and do nothing with it and let it languish there in the background. Like, it's such a tired trope. Guess what? If you are one of the very few people on this world that are blessed with that much wealth, then it is your responsibility every single month of your life to see who around you needs financial help and to help those people. Build hospitals, build schools, do things that benefit the planet, put money into scientific research, put money into medical research. Like, if you are one of those people that have an excess of financial success in life, or maybe it was nepotism or whatever it is, instead of just being like, oh, I'm going to live in this tired old shanty martial arts studio and sleep on bricks because I feel bad about how wealthy I am. Well, that's just being a negative martyr. In the comics, the reason he was kind of living like a pauper, because he was against his father's criminal activity and he wanted to stop it. So he was, it wasn't because, oh, Oh no, this, well, boo-hoo. It was, he had an actual axe to grind with his father. Yeah, and instead, it was all just socioeconomics. And I'm like, that's fine. Take the residuals from the investments that you have. Every single month, take those residuals and create scholarship funds, create schools, create all of these things that will benefit the planet create food programs, make sure, okay, you know what, if you have that much money, then it is an absolute shocking shame if any person in your area goes hungry. That's on you. You know, like, use it. Iron Fist was one of my favorite comic book characters, and I kind of got pissed off at the show, the way they get. Yeah, you and Kick both. Like, he really likes liked Iron Fist in the comics. I mean, they had him do the cool moves and stuff, but the essence of the character was so bad. Sorry. Hey, sorry. no, you're, call it the way you see it. I mean, that is your opinion. Your opinion is that you did not like the essence of the character that they created for that series. And that opinion is valid. Stay wild, curious, and keep defying the ordinary. Until next time, hit up Wadi at vredamedia.ca slash Wadi. That's V-R-A-E-Y-D-A-M-E-D-I-A dot C-A slash W-A-D-Y. And remember, there's always something we can do because we We aren't aren't dead yet. yet.